Well, uh, I am excited to welcome Jason Richardson to the Fishing for Problems podcast. Jason Richardson, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, before getting into uh, talking about technology integration within the K-12 space, can you just tell listeners a little bit about your history, what you do right now, and how you ended up where you are? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, so I'm currently a professor at the uh, University of Denver um, in the Morebridge College of Education. I'm also the department chair. So this is my first year. So starting a new job um, during the pandemic is always challenging and exciting and sort of lame all at once, right? <laughs> I can't really go out and explore the city. Um, so my research has traditionally fallen in the intersection of technology, leadership, and innovation. So in my earlier years, I still do it. I, I do a lot of de development work. So in international development context. So I've done a lot of work in Cambodia and the Republic of Georgia. Um, so looking at systems, looking how technology can better improve those systems, um, how it might be able to change professional development, those kind of things. Um, but I really geek out on uh, people's experiences with, um, with change brought on by digital innovations. So how are folks navigating this and what kind of affordances are there? Um, right now that has led me into looking at um, this, this notion of deeper learning that's been around for decades, right? But then how do leaders set up systems and schools for deeper learning where of course technology is integral to that. You can't really have deeper learning without the technology aspect, um, especially in today's day and age. So that's where I'm at right now. So still geeking out on tech leadership, but really interested in innovative school models. Yep. And I hope we get a chance to talk about deeper learning uh, later on in the show. But sort of starting at the beginning of your research. Uh, mm -hmm. So from a 20, you quote uh, Alan November's 2010 book in one of your articles, Empowering Students with Technology. Technology innovations such as online learning have changed quote, the relationships between school and home and the traditional boundaries of school in many aspects. This is a big statement, and I think it's one that has become more top of mind due to COVID, and I hope it stays that way. So can you elaborate a bit on what you think Alan meant by this and how you evaluate uh, this claim uh, 10 years later? Yeah, um, so I'm sure Alan was thinking a little bit about online learning and how that was going to start shifting things, but probably not to the extent where we're at today, right? We were all forced into online learning much quicker than it would have happened on the natural uh, 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 innovation curve, um, for better or worse. There's lots of good things about that, right? And there's lots of horrible things about that. Um, but I think he was just trying to unpack that technology really separates the silos, right? Before learning was only done there, there being the school. Um, learning was only done by people that knew what they were talking about, i.e. teachers. It could only be structured by people that know how to set schedules and um, credits, and those are school leaders, right? And now that kind of learning doesn't have to always take place in the school. And often schools don't look like that at all anymore. Um, and our home life doesn't look like it used to. So I remember as a kid, I'd come home, just watch TV. I'd watch He-Man, right? Or uh, Power, not Power Rangers, Thundercast. That's what it was. Um, and there was no, there was no um, bleed over from school. I never did my homework. I was a bad student, Matt. So, uh, so my home life was my home life. My school life was my school life. Never the twain shall meet. But now with the technology, everything meets, right? Even at school, I don't, 
I can be tuned off super fast. I can easily just get on my phone and, and chat with someone who's not at school. Or when I'm at home, I can easily start my homework um, or, or work ahead in my online class or take a class that's not offered at my, my institution. So it's like these things are bleeding over where we learn and how we learn, um, how we socialize and where we socialize. Uh, I think technology is just changing all of that and blurring all of these boundaries. And, you know, you mentioned something, the separation between home and school being more blurry than it than it used to be. I'm curious how you see that playing out in ideas like digital citizenship and <clears throat> new responsibilities that school and district leaders might have to uh, one, recognize that things going on outside of school uh, have a bigger impact on things going on inside school than maybe we maybe they did in the past and how you feel like they can respond to uh, those new challenges? Yes, yeah, a great question. Um, right before I got on on here, I just submitted a revision to an article where we did a systematic review of all the research that's been done on digital citizenship. So to date, there's only been 77 empirical articles that we could find that focus on digital citizenship. And most of them weren't that good, that robust. Um, they were they were fine, but they they weren't that robust. Um, I think up to a few years ago, school leaders didn't look at digital citizenship as something that belonged in the school. That was something that parents had to do because digital citizenship was pretty much constrained to sexting, um, of cyberbullying, those sort of things. Right? This is like stuff that your parents should be talking to you about, not what administrators or teachers should be talking to you about. So I think that teachers and leaders just relegated that to the home. And they viewed that as a parent problem. Um, but now citizenship is different, right? Um, sure, we're U.S. citizens, but I think what more folks might have a uh, um, that resonates with them are citizens of their social media sites, right? And that's not necessarily uh, geographically bound um, or in your city or in your state. Um, so... Yeah, we definitely need to work on all elements of digital citizenship. I mean, you know, uh, Mike Ribble talks about that in his nine elements of digital citizenship, right? We have to worry about health. We have to worry about kids understanding um, security as far as, hey, I just got an email from Chase saying, click on here that my card was compromised. Well, how do we tell them that that's not a real email? Like, how do you teach that? But that's a real life skill that's much more needed than um, the the, uh, the Battle of Waterloo, right? To, to, re to regurgitate what happened there. Um, and that just happened to my niece just the other day. She was saying, I'm going to click on this link. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, so yeah, I think that leaders are starting to realize that we have to be focusing on digital citizenship because it comes up all the time, especially as technologies in our schools. Um, students are going to be fished right? They're going to be, uh, their ID is going to be tried to get uh, stolen. They're going to be hacked. So we need to start talking to kids about what to do, how to take proper measures, how to act, how to act respectfully. I'm thinking about health and wellness too, right? We have way too much screen time. Um, we, the kids have way too much screen time and we all know that. So how can we impress upon them setting their own boundaries, right? Um, so like when, when we were kids, tech was a, um, a relegated to one class. So I had one class of tech, of computers, right? That was one hour a day. I had, there was no access anywhere else except for my TV, right? And it was a little dial at that time. I didn't even have a remote control. Um, but now it's just not that way and technology is everywhere. So we need to really be focusing on what does it mean to be a, a citizen in your phone, right? In this world or in this world of, of computers that we're at. So. 
And based on the work that you've done with school and district leaders, how equipped do you feel like they are to to tackle that challenge? And I, I guess the the nature of that question. So in my last role, uh, we had a technology survey, and uh, uh, teachers took it, um, students took it, and there was some data uh, in the classroom domain around uh, digital citizenship. Uh, I think digital digital citizenship itself is uh, is sort of a misnomer. It's just regular old fashioned citizenship today. But one of the things that we found was that. Organizations, as you alluded to, weren't as prepared to address that work. Uh, mm-hmm. They felt like, as you said, it was more uh, up to the the parents. And one of the things I also found was that, uh, you know, it might be April or May and uh, a tech director or curriculum director was excited about um, getting some of their new data uh, from a, a new new data collection, seeing how it changed over time, looking at their digi- digital citizenship data and thinking that they were going to see huge progress. And I would say, well, you know, what have you done? Mm-hmm. And they'll mm-hmm. say, well, we did, uh, you know, a mandatory 45 minute training back in September. And to myself, I'm thinking, you think that a mandatory 45 minute training done six, eight, nine months ago is mm-hmm. going to, you know, transform the way that your educators think about digital citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, again, I'm curious, like, what have you what have you seen on the ground? Any interesting approaches to, to that work? I haven't seen anything systematic. I mean, um, like, like going back to Ribble, he talks about different areas that I don't think that teachers ever hit on, right? Like digital commerce, what we just talked about, or um, let's see, rights and responsibility or digital law. Like students don't really know what the laws are. So if I pull down a video and I do a mix, is that okay? And I post on YouTube, can I do that? Or if I send a, a naked picture of myself to my girlfriend, is that legal? What happens there, right? And I'm talking about adolescence, right? And then what happens if, if that person reposts it? What happens? And there are laws now that, that are protecting youth, right? And that the big, big, big implications, right? Um, and teachers don't know that. Um, and I, and I just don't think that it's being discussed yet. Um, I think when we look at digital citizenship in schools, we're talking primarily about cyberbullying, right? We're talking about cheating, um, right? We might be talking about viruses because schools have to, to, to try to, uh, uh, stop that at the, uh, the firewall level, but we don't really talk about a lot of the other stuff, right? With, with etiquette, like, is it okay to text your teacher? what's up? Happy emoji, right? Like those are just, but you get them. <laughs> we do as, 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 as instructor all the time. Um, the number of times I got emails from students, which I have no idea who they are. <laughs> it's like, you didn't tell me what course you're in. You didn't tell me who you are. So, you know, we, we don't really talk to kids about that kind of digital etiquette, but you wouldn't write a letter to someone and just don't put your name on it. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think a lot of that stuff is taken for granted. And uh, personally, I'm, uh, happy that I uh, grew up 20 years ago, yeah. that I went to high school 20 years ago, and I don't have to deal with deal with yeah. it right now. Uh, and I think that's how a lot of teachers and, and, and leaders are. They just don't deal with it, right? Um, and, and, and this stuff is happening, right? So how do you try to create responsible citizens using this stuff? And they're going to do stupid stuff. That's just how kids are, right? That's how we, we were. We still do, right? But how do you learn from that? And... Um, and how do you become a better citizen in this digital world? Yep. Yeah, no doubt. 
So uh, let's get uh, back to that idea of technology work at the leadership level. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to talk about siloing, uh, the siloing of the idea of tech work. And infrastructure is one component of that. And, you know, this work can be done by what we uh, at my last job used to call boxes, wires and pliers, mm -hmm. tech directors. Mm -hmm. You know, however, there's also a pedagogical component. It's not just about putting devices into classrooms. It's also about what you do with those devices. And you write uh, that, quote, in today's K-12 schools, learning and technology cannot be seen as separate silos. Neither can they be seen as responsibilities of people in formal technology roles. It is thus vital that school administrators actively engage in the way technology is integrated into the school environment. End quote. So this makes sense. It should be obvious, but it is not always the way that things work for a variety of reasons. And often the work is siloed into the tech department. And that's not ideal under the best of circumstances, but it is far more problematic. And I discussed this in my, my first newsletter when the tech director is more the boxes, wires, pliers type instead of, you know, the instructional technology type who was formerly a teacher but has an interest in technology. And so they moved over uh, into the, you know, tech admin um, role. So, you know, breaking this down, why is it important that the work of technology integration not be the sole responsibility of those in those formal tech roles? Um, a couple of different responses there. First, those folks that have been in these traditional tech roles probably are not um, versed in pedagogy, right? They're versed in apps or they're versed in, like, like you said, uh, wires, boxes, and pliers, but they're not really versed in how you facilitate learning with this tech. It's just not their training, right? Um, so siloing it into people that know tech and people that don't know tech creates a division, I think, because then it's like, oh, I don't know how a computer works, so I can't possibly be good at technology and in my integration in my class. So it almost creates technology to be up here and beyond the the uh, capabilities of the of the of the of plebeians <laughs> of us of us teaching in the in the ranks, um, which it isn't true. I mean, that's not how technology is anymore. Like technology often just fixes itself, right? We rarely have computers break down or it'll find viruses all by itself. Um, so what we're seeing is this role of the tech directors are really going away. We're seeing a lot of this, Matt, in international schools. They don't have tech directors. They have instructional coaches. They have instructional uh, digital experience coordinators or, or people like that, right? So how can we facilitate high-powered teaching and learning with technology versus how do we just provide technology and hope for the best? Um, you, you, you just can't hope for the best for the latter. It just doesn't happen. You need people to be able to go in there and talk about the experiences of being a teacher with tech, being a kid with tech, and how do we how do we incorporate those two? Yeah, one of the or two of the questions I had one was how you break out of those, these silos and what model do you envision working best? I mean, you alluded a little bit to it uh, in what you're seeing in some other countries. Can you just elaborate a bit more? Uh, you know, because you do see it here in the U.S. Uh, in some of the orgs that I work with, where they do have more of an instructional technology specialist doing mm -hmm. a lot of this work. Uh, but what other what other models have you seen that you think are promising? Um. Well, there's always a need to to fix tech, right? So instead of having a, a, a tech person, what I've seen schools do is have students fix the tech. So they might have a, a tech hour at the very beginning where that's what students do. They are really geeking out on the, the wires and wires and boxes. So they, they're the ones responsible for that. And then you have just more instructional coaches in the classrooms with the teachers. You have school principals who are doing the same professional development with the teachers. Um, you have a lot more learning communities that focus on using 
the technology differently? Or, and, and we need to flip that. It's not even like, how do I use an iPad better in my class? It's more like, how do I in, uh, implement problem-based learning in my class and do that with the technology that's available, right? So putting the learning first and then backfilling the technology. Because a lot of folks start these technology initiatives saying, hey, I want to go one-to-one. So I'm going to put in Chromebooks um, without thinking some of the ramifications of what do you want your kids to do with these Chromebooks? What experiences do you want them to have? Um, how will they have access when they go home? Um, what about breakage rates? Those sort of things, right? Um, so giving some real thought to the actions that you want students to do and then thinking about what technology supports those actions and experiences. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. When I taught sixth grade math, we had a Chromebook cart in our classroom, in the classroom I was teaching in. And eventually we ended up with a Chromebook cart in each of the, the three classes. And uh, the, the, the sixth grade, uh, there were four teachers, we developed a, a geek squad basically, and they uh, kept our Chromebooks in amazing shape. And this was like, what, six years ago maybe. And so the Chromebooks broke a lot uh, back then. And uh, fifth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade were constantly sending theirs back uh, to be replaced. And we had this group, maybe like six, eight kids who were just on top of it every day, making sure that the Chromebooks were where they were, uh, that uh, that nothing was broken. And um, yeah, and it was, it was an easy way for us just to put that responsibility on them and they loved it. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, so sort of rethinking structures, if you will, right? How Rethinking how we sort of do things um, instead of thinking of these silos or the only way we can do it. Yeah, and I think you also alluded to something important too. And this is, uh, you know, you're right that tech leadership is just good leadership. And, you know, I get that school and district leaders have a lot on their <clears throat> plates, but, you know, thinking about this idea of just, yeah, we bought some iPads, uh, we're going one-to-one with iPads. And I would ask, well, why? Why iPads? You know, why not mm-hmm, Chromebooks? Mm-hmm. And there never seemed to be, uh, that's not true. Some folks had great reasons for it and they had thought through it. And then other folks uh, maybe uh, didn't think through it as much. And it was more just about like the stuff, you know, making things look nice and shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, why is it important at the at the organizational level, uh, at the, you know, not just the tech director or instructional uh, you know, support or t- instructional technology specialists, but at the superintendent level or the principal level to really be engaged deeply in this work? Um, for a few reasons. I mean, the leaders are the ones that can make things happen. They see where the needs are, right? If they're not enmeshed in what's happening with the teaching and learning, they really don't know how to improve it or look across the system as far as what are their needs of their teachers. Um, They would only know the squeaky wheel, right? The person that comes up and wants X, Y, or Z, but they wouldn't see how the entire operation is working and, and how that's filling and how it's meeting the needs of the vision and mission of the school. So schools that really have this dialed in, they can tell you pretty much spot on what's happening over in mass class, what's happening in Jason's class right now, um, who are the trouble kids, um, what's actually, what products are they producing, right? They know that intimately, and then they even can think, think, how is this fitting clearly into our vision? So good leaders, good tech leadership is just good leadership as far as like you have to have a, a solid vision for teaching and learning, and then how technology supports that. Um, and without being intimate in what's happening to on the day to day, 
you don't really know if that vision is being enacted. All you do, that's just a placard on the front door, right? Versus are we living and breathing this? If not, how can I get teacher over in classroom A to push forward into this, um, th this vision? So if it's more deeper learning or getting kids to ask why or getting kids to be uh, 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 more autonomous or more student voice, you know, you have to know that they're doing that. And then you have to be able to provide supports to get them to do that uh, in service of the vision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I want to talk more mm -hmm. about vision later because it is sort of a through line, I think, with uh, with a lot of your work and it's a central role of mm -hmm. the, the leadership team. Uh, but before getting into uh, that, one of the things that I am hoping to do in, uh, you know, in this project, the Fishing for Problems podcast and the Spanning Boundaries newsletter is to really try to infuse more theory into the K-12 space. And so in that 2018 paper uh, on district tech leadership, you use Marzano to discuss the relevance of second order change. And uh, I, I'm curious, can you just elaborate a bit on Marzano? What, what is first order change? What is second order change? And why, uh, why are they relevant to your analysis of the work that um, superintendents are doing? Yeah, well, I, on the side, I also do a lot of home renovations. So I look at first order change as I'm just painting the brown walls white. Um, I'm improving it. I'm uh, making more of a, of a facelift. Everything stays the same but I'm making some changes. Nothing really significantly changed. But second world, second order change would be me taking all the walls out and creating an open concept where now things are changed as far as now the way I, I cook dinner changes because now I can talk to people in the TV room. And now those relationships now change because I took down physical walls, right? Um, or placing the kitchen, of course, in the middle of the house. What does that actually do? So it really it transformed the entire way the house runs. So that's how Marzano talks about, um, although I don't think he uses house renovations, uh, first order mm -hmm. change is just, you know, tinkering with things, changing things. It could be bringing um, your, your Chromebooks in right? That's just a first order change. You didn't change anything. Chances are you're going to be doing the same thing you've always done, but now with a Chromebook. It may be, I'm going to now be doing my reading on an iPad. That doesn't change anything. It makes it fundamentally better as far as it's easier. I don't have to carry books, but it didn't change anything. Whereas a second order change is more radical, more revolutionary, more disruptive, um, more a matter of you can't not do it differently. Right. So if you start thinking about um, going to a lot of these, these schools that, that I've visited recently that are really innovative, they have more exhibitions of learning. They have more demonstrations of learning that they have to do this to real world audiences. So if you now have to to demonstrate how you what you learned and how you learned it to somebody, that's fundamentally different than taking a test. Right. Because now my entire concept of what what um, my learnings are changes, right? Um, or if you were going to more of a competency-based education versus testing, right? So how, if you start measuring competencies, that's a totally different conversation versus you got an A, right? So um, I visited a school called Parker Essential School in Devon, Massachusetts, awesome school. Um, it's one of the coalition of essential schools uh, from Ted Sizer. Um, he was actually um, one of the principals there a while ago. A while, I mean, a long while ago. Um, so there they have um, uh, competency-based rubrics on learning. And I think they said something like for six hours, students and teachers 
broke apart. What does it mean to me to be, uh, uh, it was just beginning versus beginning. They were breaking apart the word just. So what would my learning look like if I'm just beginning versus what does my learning look like if I'm beginning? So really trying to break those two things apart versus, hey, I got a C and a B. How is that mm-hmm. different? I don't, I mean, I can't even tell you if I got a C or a B, how that actually fundamentally means that I learned anything different, right? It just means that I performed better on that test. So Marzano talks more about second order change as just really changing our assumptions on how the world works. Um, so that's what technology can do, um, but often it doesn't. Often it's just a first order change because we, we're putting in the exact same system and nothing change, changes. And I, I love that metaphor that you used of uh, remodeling a house because it alludes to the importance of physical spaces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you talked about taking down physical walls. And I think that's a useful thing potentially to do, maybe create some more open spaces in classroom, but also uh, sort of like the metaphorical walls of the, the, of the mm-hmm. classroom, the four walls mm-hmm. of the classroom and thinking about how you can extend the classroom, even if you can't tear those walls down. Um uh, but really, you know, bringing in or using the tools of technology to bring in all the sort of expansive learning opportunities there are uh, out there. Um, have you seen any interesting ways that schools have approached physical spaces to uh, to transform their their instruction? Because again, going back to that metaphor you use, you know, an open space now you uh, you will be talking to whoever's out there. Previously, you might have wanted to, but mm-hmm. uh, you just didn't have the, the opportunity. But if I'm in a physical space that looks drastically different than it did before, mm-hmm. that you know naturally uh, encourages me to to do things differently, forces me to do things differently. Yeah, yeah. You, you have two questions there, I think, Matt. The, the first one is. Are there good models of people who have rethought physical space? Then are there models of people that are stuck with a traditional space that they have to do innovative things in, mm-hmm. right? Um, so one, um, I'm, we'll, we'll get to a little bit on a book that I'm submitting today. Um, we call it startup schools versus transitioning schools. So for startup schools, you know, you might have the, the chance to rethink what kind of space you want. You might even be having the opportunity to build something brand new. Um, Epic Elementary uh, in Missouri did a great job with that. It's an elementary. I think it's a K3, K2 perhaps. So they, it's, it's, it, all the learning is built around a, a circle. Um, and the teachers co-teach everything. So there's two teachers to every class. So they have twice the number of students, but they're no longer siloed. Right. These two teachers can work off one another and, you know, you can take this group. I could take this group. Um, the space is all about exhibitions, all about students uh, moving about. There are no there are very few closed areas um, and it just feels totally different because they wanted it to look different. Right. Or we have a lot of these schools that started up that are thinking about um, uh, uh proximity to other options, right? Like we're thinking about early college models or dual, uh, dual credit models. Um, we visited a school called STEM Chattanooga, which is physically attached to the back of a community college. It's, it's a garage in essence. It was the, the, uh, the, the, the bus garage perhaps. Um, but they had this whole open space and they thought, how do we want to design a traditional school within a big open space that's also connected to a community college? I mean, their affordances were fantastic, right? Because like a high school kid could just walk over to the community college and take a class. 
right? Or they come here and they engage in um, uh, in, in, in painting or they go over here and they do a literacy class or they walk over to another space where they do, they, they might be building it, working on a CNC machine or they go outside and work on drones. So the space totally felt different. It was a open air school. Um, yeah, so it just did not feel like a school because kids could walk around to these various learning experiences however they wanted. But there's also schools that are very traditional that try to do that too. Um, I visited a school, uh, South uh, Middle School up in Harrisburg, North Dakota. Um, every morning, the kids um, are sitting in a common room with their iPads, and then the teachers come up and give a pitch for what they're doing that day, right? They'll be saying, all right, today in math, I'm going to be going over the binomial, uh, bi, uh, 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 a quadratic formula once more. I know some folks had a problem with it. So in third period, I'm going to be going over uh, uh, another lesson on that. And in fifth period, I'm going to be going over whatever it is, um, geometry lessons. So students can then go on their iPads and pick which classes they want on which, um, on which uh, period. Right. So if they say, I think I need to have a, a more of a break at the very beginning so I can catch up on stuff on the first slot on the class, they put a, a study hall. Right. So they get to design their schedule in real time every day. But the building looks very much like it always did. But you just now granted kids autonomy to pick their classes every day. That's pretty powerful. Right. So they're, they now have to be on on top of where they are with their learning and then make choices on what activities do I need to push me forward to, to, to master these competencies. It was fantastic. And I would guess that in that environment, you know, certain students need significantly more support uh, just existing in that environment, knowing how to organize themselves to know which, you know, class they should take. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. does that school provide those additional supports? Because it sounds, it sounds great, um, but uh, I don't know, execution seems incredibly challenging in that situation. It does, but it's, it's like, where do you put the ceiling? And kids always learn up to that ceiling. So I would say all but maybe three kids were often going in, in two minutes. So the other ones might've been people to say, hey, Matt, I'd really like you to focus a little bit more on this. So make sure you go to that math class. Um, I think you might need a little bit more help on that one. Or they would even call kids out during that when they're doing their pitches, right? To say, you know, Matt, I know I need you to uh, work on this some more so we can come to third period. I'd appreciate it. I think that'd be a uh, good use of your time. So those those teachers also more uh, uh, were more in tune to their kids' needs than any other teachers I've seen. Did, uh, did you feel like those teachers felt like they had a lot more work? Was that just a more intensive uh, approach to, to their It didn't day? seem like it. It didn't seem like it because they were then running their classes how they wanted to do it. They didn't do the same thing every time, right? If you have two Algebra 1 classes, I've taught Algebra 1 in uh, high schools, you do it twice. But here they can change it up and say, okay, for this algebra, this, this um, uh, for fourth period, I'm just gonna go over the basics again. But in fifth period, I'm gonna take those basics and flip them on their head. And we're actually gonna be doing something with graphing calculators to actually see how this looks in real life. So you can sort of pick which, which activities you want. Yeah, and I'm sure certain kinds of teachers get drawn to, to those roles. So it's almost self-selecting in that way. Exactly, exactly. It, and there's a lot about school leaders hiring um, for the, the dispositions that they want, right? So they want teachers that are okay with ambiguity. They want teachers that are creative, that are tired of uh, the silos, right? So that's what we see yeah, with those kinds of schools. 
And one thing that you said that I liked, and this is, uh, it's something that I hear a lot. Uh, I listen to a lot of basketball podcasts because I'm a big NBA fan. And one of the, the ways that they think about, uh, you know, teams is uh, like high ceiling, low, low floor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, high floor, low ceiling. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounded like what you were alluding to is some of these environments really increase the ceiling uh, for yeah. for students. So you can be in a traditional schooling environment, you can you know have good teachers, but the structures themselves are inherently limiting to yeah. the kinds of opportunities yeah. that students have. And yeah. you know, expanding some of these spaces, expanding some of these opportunities really elevates the ceiling. It might you know keep the floor in the same place, but um, for you know for you know, for some kids, it might just be exactly what they need. Yeah. Yeah. These, these kind of innovative schools that are using technology and harnessing it in powerful ways and not just doing first order change. Um, you're seeing amazing results, right? I mean, they may not be outperforming on tests, but they're going on to college. They're being successful or they're going on to a job that they want to go into. And that's probably where the better, better markers of success are versus how do you score on the ACT, Right. So we're seeing schools all around the country that are um, uh, that are getting uh, that that are that are that are working with colleges to not do those standardized tests to have alternative ways in right, um, and we see big movements all over the country about that. So it's not hard for schools to do that and still have kids matriculate to colleges. So before, I mean, I think up to ten years ago, people were saying, "Oh, no one can get into college if I do something like that, right? How are they going to have a test yeah. score?" But I think today, day and age, we're a little bit more open-minded to alternative credentialing, alternative transcripts, if you will. Yep, yep. So switching gears uh, back to leadership. Um, so your your 2018 paper is focused on how tech savvy superintendents think about the successes and challenges of technology integration. And I like the approach of comparing those two groups. You know, technology is rapidly evolving. And so naturally, you would expect uh, school and district leaders to think a little bit differently about technology in the 2000s than they were thinking about it in the 2010s. Um, So first thing, why focus on tech savvy soups? Good question. So we we all know that well, the research is clear that leadership matters and that could be at building level or district level leadership. So if the leaders aren't understanding the needs of, of the school for the superintendent, the needs of schools, then of the needs of classrooms and the needs of kids, you know, things just aren't going to happen. So if you have a tech savvy superintendent, they're, they're tech forward as far as their understanding that the technology is needed for these learning experiences to change. So if you don't have a superintendent who's on board with that, you're going to get a lot of pushback, right? So if you have a superintendent who doesn't think that um, kids should have devices um, at all times, you're probably not going to be doing a one-to-one initiative, right? But if you have a superintendent, it's like, yes, we need to have this access. uh, We need this as an option. So if classrooms want to do this, they can. They just now open up the door for other opportunities, right? So a tech savvy superintendent understands the possibilities and allows those to happen because of technology. So technology is never the reason why we didn't do something. Hmm. So, yeah, and I like the way you frame that. Understand the possibilities. You know, they're not—they're instead not limiting the possibilities, but you know, trying to expand them mm-hmm. uh, and you know, giving more opportunities to educators to, to also just do, do their thing. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, you you categorize those challenges and successes of being a tech savvy soup into five buckets. Um, creating a shared vision is the first one. And we've talked a little bit about that. Infrastructure development, ongoing communication to stakeholders is the third one. The fourth one, ensuring PD. And then the fifth one, being a risk taker versus overcoming fear. Um, and I want to spend, you know, uh, a good amount of the rest mm -hmm. of our time talking about these. Mm -hmm. um, I know we have talked a bit about vision, uh, but uh, why don't we why don't we start there, uh, or even actually before that? Was there anything else that you you noticed but left out? Um, like the, the, you have those five categories, but anything else that you noticed, folks talking about um, that um, you know that didn't make it into into this group? Um. Well, we that the, the data set were, was a lot larger than that, of course. So we're just trying to distill this down into the five main categories. Um, but there are all kinds of things to do with policy. There are all kinds mm -hmm. of things to do with um, funding, with um, onboarding, with mentorship, those sort of things. They fall into these buckets broadly, yeah. um, which is funny that we did this piece. Um, the first piece was done around 2002. 12, 13, and the second piece came out around 2018. I don't have the actual number up here. But in 2016, a piece came out from um, two great authors, Hit and Tucker. They came up with this thing called a unified model of effective school leaders uh, or effective school leader, leader practices. What they did, Matt, they put together all of three different powerful frameworks for leadership practices, so effective leadership practices, and they put them all together to say, what are those core practices that we know from the literature that impact student learning? Um, so they had to look at the empirical studies on that. And they broke theirs down to five categories, which oddly enough, as, mm -hmm. when, you, when you presented this question to me earlier, I'm like, that's pretty close to their categories, right? Yeah. So, so, so ours was, were about tech-savvy superintendents. What do they do? But this study that I'm talking, referring to in the uh, review of um, educational research um, in 2016, I believe it was, is just about good leadership. And they match one-to-one, -one, right? Mm. It's about getting a vision, right? It's about um, and building professional capacity, which is ensuring professional development. So it's right along all these. So it was fascinating that in another piece that you, you talked about, another one of my articles was on good leader, good, good, good technology leadership is just good leadership. Mm -hmm. It's just the same thing, but with technology. So, but with the technology, people just seem to get doe-eyed, if you will, as far as they can't get past that because it, it has the potential of breaking those silos and it has the potential of raising the roof, it has the potential of changing how we teach. It has the potential of second order change. The second order change is scary to teachers, right? Because mm -hmm. we've been in, in education for whatever that is, 20, 30 years, um, because we were raised in it. So we're comfortable in it. So we're not used to doing, we're not real comfortable with saying, wait, maybe there's another way we could do education or do schooling, I guess I should say. So that makes it super scary. So I was really impressed to go back over this uh, uh, study and match it up with this Hidden Tucker framework. So um, if, uh, so if you're a, a superintendent who maybe isn't tech savvy and they're looking at these five categories, where, where might you start? Vision. Vision. I would start with vision. So what do you want out of your district? So what, uh, trying to do some visioning activities as far as in, in two years, where would we want to be in three years? You know, what we want teachers to do, what would that look, feel, um, act like, uh, same thing with the kids. What would that, what would a, a, a an effective school look like? So don't start with the tech, just start with those vision. What kind of experiences do you want kids to have? Right. 
often we put, put up, we, we flip it around to say, well, what do we want our teachers to do? No, we should really start with what do you want your kids to do after they get done with this block of education, right? Be it K-12 or, or K-3, K-5, be it middle school or high school. What do you want them to be able to do? Um, what kind of students do you want to produce there? And, and inevitably, they won't say, I want them to graduate with a 90% um, reading score. Mm. No one says that ever, right? You no. might say, I want them to be able to critically analyze modern literature um, and find the inequities in our, our, our social systems. Wow, mm. okay, now that's more powerful, right? Um, so starting off with that vision and then backwards mapping on what do we need to change to get that vision? So that goes on with professional development. Do we need to change teachers' practices, right? And it's not a one-stop uh, uh, one shop for professional development. We can't do district-wide uh, PD, which the older group of tech savvy superintendents, that's what they did. They focused on how do I get everyone to uh, understand how to use a Chromebook? So let's have a district-wide training on Chromebooks or on Google School or Google Classrooms, whatever else, right? But now it's more about how do I get the training for each individual? But now I think if you're gonna, if you ask what's gonna happen in the future, these district leaders are gonna be, how do we get our teachers to follow their passions through the professional development, right? And then how do I also get that professional development to match in with my vision, right? So how do I get all those pillars to line up? So it's not a matter of, I wanna to go to a professional development to learn how to use graphing calculators. Well, how does that match in with my vision on more student autonomy, more student voice or um, uh, exhibitions of learning, those kind of things, right? You need to ask yourself, how do those things all line up? Without a clear vision, then everything else is moot. You're just really running around doing various initiatives that aren't necessarily aligned with where you want to go. So yeah, I, I appreciate that response. And in my, in my last role, we would run these professional development sessions and that's exactly where we would start. So districts would get data around, you know, how they're doing with technology integration. What does access look like? What kinds of skills do teachers and students have? Uh, what is the environment like? Uh, does it encourage tech integration? Does it discourage tech integration? Mm -hmm. And what are teachers actually doing with uh, with the technologies that they're provided? But yeah. before getting to the data, the one thing that we did was we had uh, groups sit down and think about what they wanted students doing, what they wanted teachers doing. We sort of reframed it as like what we want learners doing and what we want um, experienced learners doing. Uh, mm -hmm. So students as learners, teachers as experienced learners. Um, based on some of the reading that I've done uh, in the last couple of years, I'm less, I think, uh, I'm less, um, I guess, into that framing. Um, I think that framing can be a little bit problematic, but the data itself that we were looking at was meaningless unless you had an idea of what you actually wanted to do with it. And then once you had an idea of what you wanted to do with it, you could say to yourself, okay, which of these data points do I think will help me get to where I want to go, or at least serve as a metric that shows right. whether I'm making progress or not making progress. But yeah, without that vision, it just seems like you're sort of, you know, moving in the dark. Exactly. Exactly. I was trying to find a quote for you, if, if I can find it really quick. Okay. Um, so I visited a school in the spring called Iowa Big in Cedar mm -hmm. Rapids. Yep. I've heard of so Iowa Big, yeah. You, you familiar with that one? So yep. the, uh, the founders of that, they started up. They started with a project where they called the the Billy Madison Project, where they got a bunch of community members together and they put them. They said, "Let's go back to school." Right. So I think they spent maybe uh, he had sixty community members and he took them back to school in pods. Right. 
and then they uh they came back and they said uh um they started off asking what do they need to be successful as an adult and a contributing citizen they said things like collaboration, pivoting quickly, and so on. Which, and, and as Trace was t- was talking about, it was a beautiful list. It was fantastic. So then they actually said, "All right, so now you experience with adult eyes. What's it like to be a student in high school? How much of the day did you actually get to do that? Mm-hmm. None. So I yeah. think that that when you want to set a vision, you need to ask yourself, what do you want these kids to be like at the end, right? And and you're asking yourself, what skills do you need to survive? Right. What skills got you by the most? And then asking, are we doing that or not? Um, so they created an entire school around that idea of how do we get kids to collaborate? How do we get them to be creative and pivot? And those were their guiding vision uh, points. So that, that kind of a powerful activity changed how they developed an entire school. Yeah. And I just want to point out that uh, I know you don't think this and I certainly don't think that this work is easy. Uh, no. It's okay. it's incredibly hard. It's time consuming. It's a five, 10, 20 year effort sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think it's important to, you know, think big. Um, and you make a good point there. Yes, it, it it can take time, but it doesn't have to. I think what we do a really horrible job of as as educators and as professors of education is sharing, Right. And now what's really coming on board now are networks. So we see these a lot with, you know, um, a new tech or uh, uh, XQ schools, these various types of networks, which are sharing resources and sharing experiences. So I think for school leaders to tap into the power of some of these networks, so you're not rebuilding things, right? We see a lot of schools say, I want to go to a graduate profile, and then they want to create it from scratch, Right. And it's so idiosyncratic. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's yeah. probably 10 other ones out there. You can go visit that school and actually see how they're doing it. And maybe you could adopt something and just morph it slightly. Um, we visited a school called Brooklyn Lab where they wanted to design everything so precise to their vision. Right. That they, they, they realized at the end that they were spending so much time trying to be specific with everything like their professional development had to line up specifically with their vision because it was so idiosyncratic and so driven by just what they wanted that they realized they were they were spending way too much time trying to stick with this narrow vision of who they were that if they expanded it slightly they could learn from others so that's what they did they just expanded what how they called certain things um and they were able to then tap into other networks and move along a lot quicker so anyway networks, I think, are going to be one of the, the big big pushes forward. Yeah. And one of the, maybe just thinking about networks and how you share information, you use technology as a great mm-hmm. tool to, to share information. And so that idea of, you know, tech savvy uh, leadership is not just um, uh, intra-organizational, but can be inter-organizational as well. Yeah. So we look at those tech savvy superintendents, and I guess finished another article on um, tech savvy principles, digital principles. Um, it's all these folks are sharing things on Twitter or sharing things on Instagram or learning from other folks or learning out, learning who are other uh, thought leaders in the field that they should be sharing things with and learning from and uh, uh, alongside. So yes, it's about building your own networks. So one of the, one of the extension activities uh, that I provided to folks in the, uh, um, in the leadership newsletter. Uh, and I didn't include it, but I'm happy to share if anybody um, is interested. Uh, and it's more of an organizational examination. The one I included is more of like a self-reflection for a, a district leader, but the activity had asked uh, a soup in their leadership team to predict what the 2020s might look like uh, as far as 
uh, you know, technology in schools. Uh, so, you know, you're uh, a superintendent in 2030. Um, you're uh, thinking back to the last 10 years um, and trying to think about how things have changed and trying to predict from, you know, today up until 2030, what you feel like you might do to keep up with some of that uh, changing environment. So I'm curious for you, like, what, what do you think the next 10 years are going to look like as far as uh, technology integration goes? If you asked me that question a year ago, it would have been, my response would have been totally different, right? Um, but of course, with COVID, I think it it did a couple different things. It showed us the affordances of technology, but it also showed us our glaring inequities in our system. Um, all A lot of problems in our system that exist from access, that exist from uh, 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 access to technology and access to knowledge. I'm just thinking about students' home lives, right? As far as some kids have working parents that they're doing homeschooling alone right now, right? Whereas other parents are working home, they might be professors like myself that can sit down and, and help your kid. Um, so that's an access to a knowledge base that a lot of students don't have. Um, or even access to internet or, or whatever it might be. Or, you know, we have a limited 10 megs coming in and three computers using 10 megs. Well, you can't be zooming on uh, 10 divided by three megs. So it just doesn't really work. Um, so I think that COVID has shown us that we need to pay attention to access and equity. We also need to pay attention to which I love that we're focusing on social emotional learning, right? We're really saying how much time is too much online? How do we get kids to be more uh, uh, present? How do we get them to be more, um, to, to address their emotions in a different way? Or uh, all these things that we just, I don't think we've we focused on so much except for in pockets, right? So I think the next 30 year, next 10 years, we're gonna have a lot more powerful use of online learning um, and I think we're going to be working more on the student experience. So when we first pivoted back in uh, early spring, people were just doing things willy-nilly, right? They were finding websites that students could go to, uh, go out and try to do this and try to do this. And I, I think right now they're, they, they shifted that going into the fall on, okay, how can we change this to be a better learning experience for kids and not make it just about the tech that they're doing? So I think earlier it was just about, it was almost from my, the experiences I'm having with parents, like they were having a lot of workshop activities, but just digitally, if that makes sense. And now they're trying to rethink, how can we rethink the student experience? I think problem-based learning is uh, uh, one of those, those approaches that can easily be pivoted in an online world because um, you don't need all the kind of direct instruction that you do if I'm sitting there lecturing at you, um, right? So I think we're going to be shifting to how to, the student experience, shifting to more student voice, worrying more about access, worrying more about social emotional learning. So my hope is that schools change to more experiences versus um, um, being a vessel where students sit as a vessel that we're trying to fill. They're more of a, it's more of a place where students come for different experiences, learning experiences. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, yeah, moving away from what Frere calls the uh, banking model of education. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I hear that. And I've also seen that too, you know, in the, in the spring when this first started and, and schools first closed down, it was more so just like 
transferring the in-person experience yeah. to a virtual mm -hmm. experience. And, you know, I think we can all um, guess that that probably didn't work so well. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mean, that was all we had. It was just sort of um, emergency learning. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, definitely seeing some interesting things, school districts, uh, individual schools rethinking how they approach that student learning experience. And, you know, when you talk about SEL with a lot of students at home who don't have access to a whole lot of other people, um, you know, definitely thinking about how uh, schools can play. I mean, it's, it's tough. Schools are already doing so much, but even play like a more intense role as uh, emotional support for students and trying to embed more of those into um, into the student experience, I think, is, is incredibly important. Yeah, for sure. So I don't want to take up any more of your time, uh, but do just want to ask, is there anything I missed? Anything else that you uh, wanted to chat about or want to let the guests know, um, you know, about things that you're working on? Um, only my current passion project, which is um, I, I brought up a couple of the schools that I've recently visited. Um, so over the past year, uh, uh, myself and a research team with uh, Justin Bathin and Scott McLeod, we interviewed 30 innovative school leaders on how they are um, building systems to innovate. Um, technology is always a part of that for sure, right? So we couldn't we couldn't break apart the technology, but how are they also, you know, using problem-based learning? How are they using authentic assessment? How are they using um, dual enrollment or early college models? We really wanted to see what was happening around the country. So we highlighted 30, 30 schools that are doing a really good job of it. We tried to find schools, Matt, that weren't, um, that weren't, um, an excuse for people not doing it. What I mean by that is like high tech, high people go there, go to San Diego. They love it. They're like, this is amazing, but we could never do it. So what we wanted to do was show models of schools that are just like yours and mine, rural, urban, suburban, right? Um, uh, affluent, um, uh, uh, less affluent to show that this kind of work is happening everywhere. So in the spring, right before COVID, we actually hit the road and visited all these schools. We got all of them, but two. So we wrote an entire book about those leadership practices um, for fostering innovative school models. And that actually is hitting the um, publisher tonight. So it'll be coming out in the spring. So we see a lot of this as far as um, uh, Jalmeda wrote a book on deeper learning from the student's perspective. So how are students learning differently? Um, but we're looking at how do leaders create those kind of student experiences? Yeah, and I mean, I hope that folks listening to this don't think that we are elevating technology to be the thing, as you have just alluded to, mm -hmm. like leadership practices and technology is one tool uh, mm -hmm. of all of that. So while we have talked a lot about technology and the role of technology in the K-12 space, all it is is a tool to help you accomplish, uh, you know, the, the more deeper learning experiences that you, you've alluded to. Right. Yeah. And in, in today's day and age, we can't do without the tools, right? Mm -hmm. Um so especially during COVID, we know that we, these tools are mandatory or else we just couldn't do what, anything that we were trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, in a, a pencil is a tool and you don't see, uh, you know, school districts thinking about how they can focus, you know, their vision around a pencil. Um, that's just not how, not how it works. No, they ask, what do they want to do with that number two? Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I appreciate your time. Um, thanks for coming on and uh, talking a little bit about your work and, and looking forward to staying in touch in the future. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Take care.